All right, well, it's wonderful to hear children sing songs about the love of Christ and about recognizing that God is the creator and owner of, of everything. They, they all belong to him. And we just want to pause and pray for these children, just ask for God's blessing on them, and really just pray that the things that they've sung this morning would really come true in their heart, that they would believe them, and as they grow, that their, their faith in those realities would just be strengthened. So pray with me. Lord, we thank you for these parents and the students that are here this morning. Uh, we just thank you for their willingness to be here and their willingness to entrust us with their children. And uh, Lord, we, we thank you for the beautiful children. They're a blessing from you uh, to these families and to us as a church today and, and to our preschool. We, we give you thanks for them. We don't take for granted any of your good blessings to us. And uh, we know that children are, are some of the greatest blessings. Lord, we, we want to pray this morning for these children. They, they sang about the reality of Jesus' love for them and about their, their understanding that God owns all things. And I do pray, Lord, that they would continue to confess that, that they would continue to believe that when they grow up. Lord, we, we pray that this wouldn't be just sort of childish things that they look back on and scoff at, but those, those realities, Lord, would settle deep within their souls that you might use them in, in great ways for your kingdom. Help them to know your, the love of your son, Jesus Christ. Bless us now today as we come to hear your word. We, we pray that we would have ears to hear, that we wouldn't just let the message this morning go in one ear and out the other, but, but again, that these things that we're going to hear would, would settle in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we're going to talk this morning about being saved by grace. And I just want to pray right now that if there's one here who does not understand salvation by grace, that, that you would just bring it home to them. Help them to see it in a new way this morning and draw them to your son, Jesus Christ. We know that you can do that. And we pray that you would this morning. We'll give you all the glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see all of you all out there this morning. Glad we have visitors with us. So I'll say this. If you don't like my preaching, I'm not usually the one preaching, so give us another chance. If you do, come back because I'll preach again sometime. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. If you've been here uh, recently, you know we're in a series through Ephesians. Andrew's been doing a great job leading us through uh, chapter 1 so far, and uh, a lot of the themes, a lot of the things that we have unpacked coming out of chapter 1 spill right over here into chapter 2. So uh, if you've got those things in mind, that'll be helpful as we go through the text today. But if you have your Bibles, join me in chapter 2 at verse 1, and I'll read these first 10 verses as we begin. God's Word says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath along with the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Will you pray with me? Father, as we journey into chapter 2 this morning, I just want to ask that you would be with us, that you would be with me in speaking, God, uh, proclaiming your word, that I would be bold in that proclamation, that I would be accurate in that proclamation, that I would be faithful to the text and faithful to what your word teaches, and that you would feed your sheep through the word being dispensed this morning because our bread, O oh God, is the word of God. I also pray that you would be with those who sit in the pews this morning. Perhaps many sit there thinking that they are just passive from this point forward, but God, your word tells us otherwise. And what I'm praying is that you would activate listening ears throughout the congregation this morning, that you would focus hearts and minds, that you would make the communication effective from my mouth and effective in the ears and the hearts of those who receive it so that you get glory this morning and we get fed as your sheep and sinners can hear the gospel of salvation and repent and come to Christ. These are the things we desire. We pray for it because we can't do it. And we know that you can. So God, we ask for an exercise of your power, your might, your grace this morning to do these things because you are rich in mercy and grace. And we thank you for it, God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now I did notice that there's no title in the bulletin. That's because I'm not usually part of what goes on and I don't know who to tell and when to tell them. So if you're into titles, it's from death to life through the grace of God. I'm going to have three main points Point number one is simply going to be that Jesus brings the dead to life. Our second point this morning is going to be that Jesus changes how we live. And then the third major point that we're going to make this morning is that Jesus changes our relationship with God. So if you're taking notes and need an outline, those are the, the main points that we're going to hang these uh, truths on. So I mentioned it a while ago, but Ephesians 2 flows right out of chapter 1 and should be understood as being connected to chapter 1. Because remember, when the Bible was written, it wasn't given chapters and verses. That came centuries later, uh, that men, for the sake of memorization and understanding where people were at in a, in a given text, we put chapters in and verses in, and sometimes those divisions aren't natural. They just don't flow. And if you notice, the first word in chapter 2, verse 1 is and, and grammarians know that you don't start a sentence with the word and too often. Like, that's just not something that we do. But it tells us that it's connected to what's gone before. He's continuing a thought here. So the things that he has unpacked for us coming out of chapter 1, he sees chapter 2 as a logical extension of that, a, a continuation, an outflow from that. Uh, it's a continuation of thought. So I want you to see that there are several connections between chapters 1 and 2. Three of them that I'll highlight for you right now that come out of what Paul prays in verses 17 through 23. We get down into verse 20, and, and this is where the meat of everything that I'm going to bring out connects with chapter 1. So in verse 20, we see that Christ was dead. Well, we know if we know who Christ is, that that's unnatural. He's God. 
It's unnatural for God to die. So we, there's a backstory here, and the backstory is the sinfulness of man and the plan of God to redeem and, and Christ being born and taken on flesh and, in order to suffer and die for our sins. And so Paul tells us Christ was dead at one point. He was dead because of your sin. He was dead because of my sin. But in chapter 2, verse 1, we see the parallel that Paul makes. We also were dead. Now that's present tense for some of you, perhaps. Some of you are dead this morning. Some of you are in sins and trespasses. Some of you have never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And you're breathing oxygen, but you are spiritually dead. So when it says you were dead, that's not a blanket statement for all mankind just because we're, we're Americans and we salute the flag and we stand for the Pledge of Allegiance doesn't mean that we're alive in Christ. Just because we belong to the culture of America, which is what we say Christian, doesn't make us alive in Christ. Some of us in this room this morning, no doubt, are dead in trespasses and sins. So when we use this language, we're, we're assuming that Paul is speaking of believers and about believers, but also for the sake of unbelievers here. So don't lump yourself into a category automatically because you're here this morning that you may not belong in. Listen and and, and see what the Spirit would do in your life this morning. So Christ was dead. We were dead at one point. It says in verse 20 again that Christ was made alive by the Spirit of God. We also, in chapter 2, verse 5, were made alive by the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Verse 20 says, chapter 1, verse 20 says that Christ was raised and seated in heaven. And chapter 2, verse 6 says that we also were raised and seated in heaven. And obviously we're here this morning, so there's some spiritual aspect to that. It's not a literal wooden sense that, well, it says we're in heaven, so we're in heaven, and this is all false reality. We're in the, you know, the matrix or something like that. No, we're actually here. I'm actually speaking, and you're actually listening. But in some sense for believers, we are positioned with Christ right now in heaven at the right hand of God. That's an irrevocable status. That's a place that cannot be taken from us. We are with Christ in the presence of God. And, and all this is true because what we learned back in chapter 1 is that this was predestined according to the purpose of Him. That's God, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So this whole idea of Christ being dead, of we being dead and then being brought to life and being raised and seated with Christ in the heavenlies is a part of this plan of God, this counsel of God. It's what he intended to happen. And I've said this before in preaching and in teaching. What we experience here is not God's plan B. Jesus coming to die for sin was not the, the backup plan because the first plan failed. It was the plan. And that's clear in chapter 1. All this stuff took place before the world was founded, before it existed. God had loved a people, and we'll see that, and he had planned to send Christ. All that was in place prior to the first act of rebellion. And so it was the counsel of God. It was predetermined according to the counsel of his will that Christ would die for sinners, that he would be buried, that he would be raised, and that he would be resurrected to be seated at God's right hand in the heavens, and that we as believers would be united to him in that death, burial, and resurrection. Perhaps you've heard somebody say that, that with the gospel, talking about good news this morning and thinking about the gospel that's in these verses, perhaps you've heard it said that before you can get to the good news, you have to first understand the bad news. 
And that's where our text starts us at today. You couldn't start with worse news then, and you were dead. Like, it doesn't get much worse than that. I talked to a guy in a break room or in a meeting the other day, and I said, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. You know, it could be worse. You know, the alternative is worse than this. And, and people tend to say things like that, you know, like death is, is a bad thing, and we know that it is. Uh, and so verse 1 starts us there. It reminds us that we, of the bad news before we can appreciate the good news. We were dead in the trespasses and sins. But if we, if we skip down to verses 4 and 6, we see the 4 through 6 rather, we see the connection. Verse 1 connects to what Paul says in verses 4 through 6. So he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then we skip down, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So there's the good news that follows the bad news, but we have to see that we were dead. And some of you need to see that you are dead. That presently, currently, you are under the wrath of God. You are, there is no life in you, spiritually speaking, and that you need a Savior. And hopefully by the grace of God, you will feel that weight this morning. But Paul says we were dead in our sins. And that means all people from all times, all walks of life, this is true. That all human beings have been, at least at some point in their life, dead in trespasses and sins. If you remember back to Genesis, when God gave Adam the, the one basic command, he said, look, I've made this garden, I've made all this beautiful fruit, it's, a, it's a, a beautiful and lush place, and here's what I want you to do, Adam. Walk with me, obey me, one stipulation, don't eat from the tree that's in the center of the garden. Because the day you eat from that fruit, you will die. But in the Hebrew, what that really is, it's a, an expression, what God really said to Adam was, is that dying, you will die. That really helped me because as a kid, you know, I always think through things and it's hard for me to, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around, well, if God said, Adam, you're going to die the day you eat of the fruit and Adam lived to be hundreds of years old, wasn't that wrong? Didn't God miss the mark a little bit? The prophecy wasn't quite fulfilled. But when I came to understand that what God said to Adam was there will be an initial death and an ongoing process of death, that made more sense. What God was really saying to Adam was, is the day you eat, the day you rebel, the day you cease to walk with me, death takes place spiritually. You are cut off, Adam. And from that point forward, death works itself out in your body. Death works itself out in the world that you were supposed to govern. The world that you were supposed to care for is now corrupt, will, will become corrupt, because dying, you will die. God warned of that as the just punishment of sin. So sin not only brings death as an end result, but it's killing us along the way. And this is seen in our broken relationships with God and in our broken relationships with our fellow man. Dying, you will die. That's why we need grace marriage. That's why we need discipleship. That's why we need preaching and teaching because death is at work in this world because of sin and rebellion. One commentator has said, the end result has invaded and permeated the present. Death controls life. And as a consequence of sin, people have no relation to God and distorted relationships with each other. They are powerless to change and are being pulled down to destruction. Again, this is what we would expect from a statement that God made to Adam. Dying, Adam, you will die. We see its destruction everywhere. So how did we get here? How is it that we're dead in sin? 
I wasn't there that day. Were you there when Adam ate from the fruit? None of us were. Not in some sense, but yet we were in another. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, about Adam and about the sin and about how we all came to need the gospel, why we need a savior. He said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. And listen to how he ends that statement. Because all sinned. God doesn't have a problem imputing Adam's sin to you or to me. And that seems offensive. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. It, it is somewhat offensive. We want to balk at that and, and bristle and say, well, that's not fair, God. Why would you impute a, a, an unrighteousness to me that I wasn't there? I, didn't, I wasn't standing around goading Adam to eat the fruit. Go ahead, break God's law. We tend to think that we would have been the, the, the narrow way, the straight-laced one. We would have never rebelled against God, and the truth is we would have done it too. But Adam did it. He did it in representation of all human beings, and because death entered his body, he had nothing but death to pass on to his offspring. Because he was broken in his connection to God, he had no life within himself. He couldn't give life to his kids and they couldn't give life to their kids and so on and so on and so on. And that's why we sit here this morning guilty under Adam and needing saving through Jesus Christ. And it, it may seem unfair, but I, I will deal that with that in just a second. This means that out on our own, we can't receive the message of salvation. We're dead prior to salvation. We are lifeless. And if, if you don't understand how that works, then try to talk, just go right out here after church and stand on these graves and talk and see if you hear any voices coming back. Dead people don't talk. Dead people don't listen well either. Dead people don't respond. And God says that's how every last one of us enter life. We are born naturally, but we are dead spiritually. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person, just being born, just the natural course of life, the way we're born, that person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why, Paul? Because they're folly to him. And listen, he makes it even worse. It's not, it's not that they're unwilling. He says, and he is not able. There's an, un, an, an inability here. Not just an unwillingness, but an inability to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And the Paul's point is, is that there's no spiritual life in a natural man. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. So our spiritual death prior to salvation brings with it the inability to accept the message of God being preached. Why doesn't the natural man sit in church and get up and go run down front and beg for salvation? Because he can't. Not on his own. He won't because there's an inability in fallen man to be right with God. So how will they benefit from preaching then? Well, I can tell you without giving it all away yet, it's not by their own wisdom. You will not benefit from my message today because of your smarts, your wit, your inherent goodness, because the message of the Bible is, is that you don't have inherent goodness. You've inherited evil and wickedness and estrangement from God. And it's not just in 1 Corinthians that we see the bleakness of this bad news. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus himself says, no one can. That's also an ability statement. It's impossible, he could have said, for anyone to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Again, looking at natural man, unsaved prior to salvation, Jesus says that no one can come unless the Father acts in their life and draws them to him. So our spiritual death prior to salvation prevents us from coming to Jesus in repentance to receive salvation. It's another problem with being dead in trespasses and sins. How then will they repent and believe? Not by their own ability, not by their own strength, not by their might or their power, but by the Spirit of God. John 15, 5, Jesus again, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now listen to this, because that's very positive. For or but apart from me, you can do nothing. And I would wager to say that in the Greek, that means nothing. You, we can't. No spiritual good. Nothing good can come from that. Our spiritual death prior to salvation makes it impossible for us to do anything pleasing to God. That's a heavy statement, and I, I understand the full import of what I just said. Prior to salvation, nothing you do pleases God. Your giving to charity doesn't please God. Your kind acts don't please God. None of those things ultimately please God. In fact, in the Proverbs, it says that the plowing of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That means if you just plant your garden to feed yourself and your family, God sees it as an act of rebellion because it's not done with an attitude of faith. It's not done for his glory. And even the most mundane acts of breaking ground to plant life-giving seed, God sees as reprehensible by those done by those who are not found in Christ. That's bad news. That's, that's, the, that's, that's verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We're unable to do any spiritual good because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Now please understand, we have a category for doing good and we appreciate the good acts that people do and we would call it good and that's perfectly fine, but understand that none of your almsgiving is meritorious in God's eyes. None of the good things you do, none of the giving to charity, none of the opening your home to strangers, none of the kind acts of random kindness that you do, you pay for somebody's lunch behind you at, at, at McDonald's or whatever, none of those things impresses God or merits any favor from him or causes him to want to shower his, his love on you. It, we get that through grace alone. It's the gift of God. It comes through repentance and faith, and we will see those things here in a minute. But we, are, we cannot please God apart from salvation. So perhaps someone's thinking this morning, how could I be born dead in sin? That isn't even fair. And I sort of talked about that a while ago. But I want to talk about it again. We're born dead in sin because we're united with Adam. And I need you to understand that. That category is important. This, this idea of being united to somebody is, is a major theme here throughout Ephesians. And Paul is arguing, okay, so we know that we've been united with Adam. But his point throughout the book of Ephesians so far has been you as believers are no longer to be united with Adam, but you're to be united with Christ. This, this, this is big. This is a major theme and we need to see that. Before salvation, we were only represented by Adam. There was no representation of Christ, so to speak. So as the father of our race, speaking of Adam, he represented all human beings. So when he rebelled against God, we rebelled against God. He was cut off from the life of God. 
we were cut off from the life of God. And it's not that uncommon of a concept in our culture. We have what we call class action lawsuits. That means some people get together and find out that some company did something wrong and they, they mount a lawsuit against them. Then they send out all these emails and stuff to everybody else. If you've ever experienced blah, 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 thus and such, then maybe you want to get on, in on this class action lawsuit, but you don't ever go to the courtroom. You don't ever you know, get on the stand. You don't ever testify, but you're represented by people who do. And they go and litigate that, and, and if they get rewards, you get rewards. If they don't get rewards, you don't get them because you're being represented by somebody else. And I know this will make sense to a lot of people in the room. Ever hear of a union? A lot of us in here have. You're represented by people who sit at the table with the company and, and hammer out a contract on your behalf. And what they come back with represents you. You're, if it's good, you get the good. If it's bad, you get the bad, and you think that's good and fair. And it is. That's, that's perfectly all right. That's just an echo of what God did with representing us in Adam. It's not unjust. It's, in fact, the way that we do life always, constantly, all around us. We, we live and even enjoy representation. That's why we have congressmen and senators that go to Washington for us so we don't have to leave our lives behind and go, go lobby at the president's front lawn. That's the system of government that we are accustomed to. And it, that's, that's very similar to what I'm talking about here with Adam and with us. God did not leave things all messed up, though. We've been represented by Adam. Adam rebelled. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But according to verses 4 through 6, there's something else out there. We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Instead of leaving us dead in sin, God made us alive together with Christ. Why would he do that? Ask yourselves that question. Why, if you're dead, if you're offensive to God, if you are a rebel against his will, if you've never done anything prior to salvation that pleases God or moves the needle of meritorious good works that would earn any salvation, why would God care enough to, to why would he get involved? Why would he do that? The answer is because by his very nature, he is rich in mercy. By his very nature, that's what Paul says in verse 4, but God, all that stuff is true in verses 1 through 3, and it, it's horrible, and it's rotten, and it stinks, but God, but God what, Paul? Being rich in mercy, acts on behalf of his people. The story doesn't stop with Adam. There's a second man who represents people, and that's Jesus Christ. But God has mercy on us because he is rich in mercy. Why does he spend that mercy on us? If he's rich, if we think in terms of money, I'm wealthy, I've got all the money I want, I can do whatever I want with it, I could hoard that money to myself. But how much greater, how much more of a benefit would that be if I would spend that money on some of you? If I got rich, I would pay off my debts for sure. But then if I had enough, I'd probably pay off debts of my family members. And then I'd have all kinds of family I never knew I had calling, hey, you know, cousin so-and-so, uh, uh, I'm really down and out, and could you spend some of that wealth on me? 
Well, God is rich in mercy. He's got inexhaustible supplies of mercy. And who has he chosen to spend that on? He's chosen to spend it on his people. He spent it on many of us here this morning. And why did he do that? Why does God spend his mercy on us? Why make that investment in you? Why make that investment in me? Because he's been loving you from eternity past. I want you to look back at chapter 1, verse 4 real quick. We'll start with verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, I want you to see this point. Paul says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And why is he blessed? Why is he so wonderful? Paul says, Even as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the answer to the question, why does God spend his exhaustless mercy on you or me, is because for all eternity God has loved you and he has loved me. There's no other foundation. God is absolutely free. He is not bound to save a single sinner. By rights, we should have all gone to hell. And it would have been no miscarriage of justice. God would have done nothing wrong by stepping back and saying, no salvation for any of you all. But he's rich in mercy and he has loved his people from before he ever created. Endless ages past. From all eternity, God was like the prodigal, the son and the prodigal, the father rather, in the prodigal son story. You've got this kid who spends his, his wealth. He basically says, dad, I wish you would die. So his dad gives him the inheritance. He leaves, spends it all on loose living. And then he comes back. And instead of dad running to the end of the driveway and berating him and punching him in the throat and giving him everything that he should have received, one, the dad ran, which they didn't do in that culture. He lifted up his, his robe and bared his legs, which was just absolutely degrading. And he runs to meet his son and he falls on him and kisses him and he loves him. And why did he do that? Because the whole time his son seemed dead to him, dad was rehearsing forgiveness. Dad wasn't holding a grudge. Dad was practicing love toward his son that he didn't know he would ever see again. So the moment he saw that son, he ran to him and showered him with love. And that's just a small picture of what God's done for eternity for his people. He has set in eternity past loving a people that he knew would rebel against him, that he knew would defile his name, that he knew would hate him. And yet he comes to us through Jesus Christ and he falls on us with love and mercy and he rescues us from our sin because he is rich in mercy and abounding in grace and for eternity past he has been loving us since he is by nature merciful God did not wait for us to clean our lives up in fact what we've already seen is that we never could but let's go back to this objection about our guilt in Adam being unfair I want you to see this if it's wrong for God to condemn you with Adam it's wrong for him to justify you with Jesus don't miss that. Nobody wants to throw the foul flag on I got redemption through, through faith in Jesus and he represents me before God. Nobody wants to say that's unfair. 
But if your logic here today is it's unfair for God to condemn me in Adam, then it's equally unfair for God to justify you in Jesus Christ. And if that's truly a wrong act, then saving you is a wrong act and you're really just condemned this morning because God messed up. Who believes that this morning? Nobody in here, I hope. So there's no foul, there's no cosmic unfairness going on when God condemns you in Adam and justifies you in Jesus. We love that justification. But if those two things are on different sides of the equation and we say this is wrong, then the other side of the equation has to be wrong as well. I don't know much about math, but I know that. You can't mess up one side of the equation and get the other side right. Now, however, just as all mankind is united with Adam, all who repent and believe become united with Christ. So that by nature, our union with Christ is different. We become different because we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And we were crucified with Christ and also raised in his resurrection. That's important as well. Notice that God is active in these verses. It's the work of God. And because he has, uh, from chapter 1, he said that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That also means that the death of Christ was for us and the resurrection of Christ was for us. That is our hope and that is our good news. That's what gives this whole thing power. That's what makes this whole thing work. So, but notice that God is active. He's the one in verse 4. What does it say? Who did what? But God, look at it, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, uh, he raised us up in Christ. I'm skipping a few things there, but because of God's activity, we are made alive. God made us alive. He acted on us. So why did he do, or how rather did he do this? It's by our co-resurrection with Jesus Christ. That's this connection back to chapter 1. This plan of God, this, this eternal predetermined plan of God, this choosing of God, it's not disconnected from what we're reading here now. It's important for what we're saying because our resurrection is powerful and effective because we were united with Christ in eternity. We died with Christ when he died. We were raised with Christ when he raised and we were seated with Christ when he ascended on high. That is the logical flow that Paul gives us here. This is what he meant when he said those things in chapter 1 about it being according to the purpose of God's will. We're not saved by happenstance. We are not saved just by random chance. We're saved because God had a purpose to save. God had a desire to save. And God has the power to save. Nobody can push his hand back and say, quit saving me. And nobody will. That's a, false, that's, a, that's a false argument. We think that when we talk about God in this way and when we understand how salvation works that God drags sinners to heaven kicking and screaming, I don't want to go to heaven. That's not what we teach and preach. God changes hearts and sinners who once felt that way, who once hated God, who once hated the, were repulsed by the idea of being stuck in his presence for eternity, somehow... In a way that I can't explain to you, God changes that through salvation. And I, who once hated God, love God now, and I will willingly walk all the way into glory following Christ every step of the way. How he did that, I can't tell you. But that he did that, 
I am absolutely certain of. God has power to save. No one can stay his hand. It was the exercise of God's gracious will to save undeserving sinners. And he did so first of all for our good because we were dead and hellbound. But he did it secondly so that we might magnify him in the kind of praise that only a redeemed soul can offer. There's praise around the throne of God by all the angels who never sinned. But there's real deep meaningful, and I don't mean to to minimize that because that is real, deep, and meaningful, but there's another level of worship that takes place around the throne of Almighty God when you get people who knew they were headed to hell and God reaches down and plucks them out of that, that fate and saves them, not by anything of their own, not by any goodness in their own heart or any doing of their own, and he redeems them and sets them in his throne. That's some worship now that comes out of lips that have been saved from that fate. And only we, the redeemed, can offer that. There is a beauty to that move of God, that activity of God that just, that, that just deepens things. And in fact, Peter says that this is so marvelous, so crazy, so off the hook that the angels are sort of on the edge of heaven looking down like, I want to see and understand this salvation that God is working in their lives. I don't understand this. I don't get it. But we do. We grasp this if we've been changed by the mercy and the grace of God. And it is awesome and it is beautiful and it ought to come back out of us in worship and in praise and in devotion and commitment to God. The implication of what Paul's saying here is earth-shaking. Hear this. Jesus didn't die simply to make salvation possible. I hear that all the time, and that's not true. Jesus didn't die to make salvation possible. He didn't die for theoretical sin, but rather he bore God's wrath for a specific people and for specific sins, thus actually accomplishing salvation, not just making salvation possible for whatever Joe Blow would walk by and want it. Jesus saved the people of God. Matthew chapter 1, verse 28 says that Jesus came to save his people. His death effectively atoned for our sins and his resurrection effectively gives life to our spirit. This is how Jesus brings the dead to life. That's point one. Not only this, but now point two. Jesus changes how we live. We'll see this in verses two and three compared to verse 10. Before salvation, Paul says, we walk following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And when he talks about walk here, it's not just we stroll, you know, we're just kind of off on a walk on a stroll, you know, going to Fastwood, making some laps around the park. He's talking about the way that we live. It's to follow or to be occupied with or to regulate. So what he's saying is, is that prior to salvation, we followed the will of Satan. We were regulated by his desires We were occupied with his agenda. We wanted what he wanted. This doesn't mean that we openly worshiped Satan. We weren't sacrificing goats and wearing pentagrams. That's not the point that Paul's making, nor the point that I'm making. It just means to show us that we were under the influence of Satan because we were walking contrary to the will of God. And that manifested itself not in pagan rituals for most of us but in self-seeking self-serving living for myself i'll do whatever i want to do how i want to do it i did it my way that's what it looks like to be dominated by satan's desires 
He doesn't need you to worship him. He just needs you to hate God. He just needs you to continue in your own self-absorbed lifestyle. So verse 3 identifies unsaved living as, quote, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. In other words, our selfish and sinful lifestyle was evidence that Satan was our father. And that's a tough message. I'll grant you that. But Jesus says it in John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. How do you know that? Because your will is to do what your father desires. This is what he said to people who resisted him. He came preaching, offering life, teaching the will of God, and people didn't like that, and that didn't mean that they were sacrificing goats or wearing pentagrams. It meant that they did have a father other than Jehovah. It was Satan. They were following after his desires because they didn't want the message of salvation. They refused the offer of hope in Christ, and they rejected their Messiah. And he says that is evidenced by your lifestyle, your willful rejection or your ignorant rejection of truth that you have a father, but it's not God. It's not the only place we hear this message, though. 1 John 3.10, John, the beloved disciple, one of Jesus' inner circle, said, By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's cut and dry for John and for Jesus. Lifestyle matters. You can't tell me that you love Jesus and go to work and cuss Monday through Friday. Just foul mouth all day long. Nobody at work knows that you're a believer. You may be, and I'm not going to say you're not, but I'm going to tell you to stop because you make Jesus look bad. You're running, you're running his good name by that behavior. And what this is telling us is, is that that's, that really demonstrates that you're aligning yourself more in those moments than you are with Christ. Again, it's not that your salvation, you may be saved, but you are not acting saved in those moments. And it is an affront to God. It is disrespectful. And it is dangerous because it could prove to be the first evidences of a, of a person who sat through church their entire life and was never truly changed by the grace of God. There are other ways, and I can't enumerate them all, but the, the, the way that we live must change if we've, in, if we've come in contact with the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, who are you living for? Who does your life demonstrate your father to be? That's an important question for us to answer because Paul boldly asserts that authentic salvation unavoidably changes us because Jesus changes how we live. If our lives prior to conversion were selfish and sinful, then they must necessarily change when we come to Christ. Now granted, some of you may have been raised in church and your salvation may have happened gradually and you may have never gone off into drugs or, or loose living and your conversion may not be super uh, wild and crazy. You're not the conversion story that people pay money to come listen to. And that's perfectly fine. And your change isn't necessarily so radical. But the truth is, is that in every conversion, there is change. There necessarily has to be because Paul says you were dead but if you're in Jesus, you're no longer dead, you're alive. And those two things couldn't be more opposite. And so there has to necessarily be a change of lifestyle that takes place for anyone who says, I'm alive in Christ. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. There must necessarily be evidence of that. Contrasting our former life that was lived for ourselves, living after the things of Satan, uh, living for uh, greedy, selfish desires, Paul says in verse 10 of those who are in Christ, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So instead of this lifestyle that is listed out in verse 3, we see a different lifestyle for the believer in verse 10, created in Christ for good works, that we should walk in them, be dominated by them, uh, just like we were once dominated by sin. We cannot continue to live in sin because we were saved for good works. Verse 10 says that salvation is a recreative act whereby our old nature is subdued and our new nature is set free to influence all areas of our life because God saved us for good works. That's what we were saved for, and that's a big category. But we weren't saved to live the same old lives. We weren't saved just to get to heaven. Banish that notion. You were saved for right now as well as for eternity to come. You were saved for good works. We're not doing those good works around the throne. We're doing those good works here in the present so that people will see our good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. Jesus doesn't just change how we live, though. Jesus changes our relationship to God. We see this in verses 3 and 7 in contrast. This is why our lives must be changed. If we're saved, we're no longer children of the evil one, but rather children of God. And that means we've undergone a significant change of nature. Verse 3, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, naturally, without any, any additives, didn't have to do anything to get there. We were born children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So as we've already learned, through Adam, we were born under God's wrath. Yet verse 7 describes former objects of wrath now being objects of what Paul describes as, quote, the immeasurable riches of God's grace. So how did we go from being under the wrath of God? And that's not just hell. If you're in sin this morning, if you don't belong to God, your rejection of him is signs of God's wrath. Your impenitent heart, the fact that you're listening to me and you have no desire to get right with Jesus is a sign of God's wrath on you right now, if that's you. Understand that. Wrath isn't just this hell thing out there in the future. It's why you reject Jesus right now. You are abiding under the wrath of God. But yet verse 7 says that that can be taken care of. Verse 7 says that some of us, that all of us rather, who, who formerly lived that way and have given our lives to Christ are now objects of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. So we should ask, how does one come to receive this immeasurable grace of God, these immeasurable riches of God's grace? How do we get there? Well, the answer brings us back once again to verses 4 through 6. It tells us again that we were under wrath, but God, I'm just kind of piecing it together here, but God made us alive and raised us up and seated us in heavenly places so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the basis of it. But 8 and 9 flesh that out a little bit more. Paul goes on to say, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's a crucial component for salvation. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And it's not a result of work on our part so that none of us will boast when we get before God's throne or boast in this life. One cannot be transferred out from under God's wrath without saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we get there. Saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
Scripture says without faith it's impossible to please God and that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we must exercise faith in Jesus in order to be saved. But where does that faith come from? Look back at verse 8. What does Paul say? That grace to believe, that faith to be exercised in Christ is the gift of God. So this is what I tell my kids. You need to do what's right because God said so. God will hold you accountable for the things that you say and the things that you do. But daddy, how do I know if I'm believing in Jesus or how do I get saved? Son, you ask for God to change your heart because you can't do it for yourself. It's a gift. But what we've seen is that we've got a generous God. We've got a God who is rich in mercy and he's just waiting to dole that mercy out on everybody who needs some. And we've also seen that we're dead in trespasses and sins. We can't affect change. We can't save ourselves. But what we can do is hear the preaching that God saves sinners who repent and we can pray and cry out like people do and say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's what we, we don't just pray a prayer like I, that's why I'm not going to end this with repeat after me prayer because that's not repentance. But, and we can't force that to happen. But we can appeal to the merciful God who gives the gift of faith and brings about repentance. We appeal to him. So if you know your condition is hopeless this morning, if you know you're lost in your trespasses and sins, if you know that you are not right with God, don't try to clean up your life because you can't. Call out to Jesus Confess your sins. Tell God that you're as sinful as you know yourself to be and your only hope is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And God, please have mercy on me. Grant me repentance. Give me a contrite heart. Help me to exercise faith that I don't have. Gift me with what I'm broke on. Give me what I don't possess so that I also can lay claim to the efficacious work of Jesus Christ. We plead with God because it's the gift of God. And Paul says, ask, we could ask the question, did we earn this gift? Are you going to do any, can you do anything to get it? And I want this to be an encouragement. We think of it as a negative thing, like we can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to earn it. You just can't, but God gives it. It's a, it's a good thing. It's a, you're supposed to see how merciful and how gracious he is and how ready to save he is. And you see that in contrast to your weakness and inability. I can't do this, God. And he says, but I can. He can and he will and he does. It's not a result of you doing anything because you can't. So the weakness and the inability that you feel that when you lay down at night and you know you can't help yourself, you can't help yourself, but God can. Call out to him. You don't earn his salvation. You don't get yourself straight or line your life out or do enough good and then you're eligible to receive grace. God gives it when you're ineligible to receive it. That is the glory of the gospel. This means that God didn't look down through the portals of time and see us seeking after Jesus and therefore reward us with saving faith. That would be something owed. Instead, this is what happened. This is what Paul is saying. God looked down through the portals of time and saw us perishing in sin. He saw that we were afflicted by his wrath. So because of the great love with which he loved us, he gifted us with faith to believe in Jesus Christ. 
in his life and his death and his resurrection on our behalf. But too many people question God's goodness because of the reality of hell and the fact that people, oh, not everybody's going to be saved. And that is a reality. Not everybody's going to be saved. So how can a loving God send people to hell, they sneer. But this question robs God of his holiness and of his justice. God doesn't stop being just and holy because he's loving. He is equally all the time exercising all his attributes at once. He doesn't, well, not justice today, just love. Well, not love today, only justice. It's all the time and his justice tempers his love and his love tempers his justice. But Paul doesn't dodge the reality of God's holiness and justice. He sees God's present wrath on unbelievers as well as the future condemnation as evidence of God's holy justice. Yet, Paul won't sacrifice God's mercy on the altar of God's justice, and we shouldn't either. He teaches, Paul teaches here, that God devised a way to rescue his people from the tyranny and the judgment of sin without compromising his justice. Through the substitutionary death of Christ Jesus, God satisfies his wrath towards sin because our sins were punished in Jesus while bringing us into the family of God all the while. If God punished your sins in Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. We should write a verse of scripture about that. It's there. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the backstory of that is, is God put your sin on Christ. God punished Christ for your sin. Your sin has been propitiated. God's wrath, rather, has been propitiated. That means he's no longer angry and wrathful toward you who are in Christ because Jesus bore the punishment that you deserved. So he can now, in Christ, shower us with what Paul calls again the immeasurable riches. Can't even be weighed out, can't even be counted, can't even be fathomed the riches of God's grace and kindness that he pours out on us in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death for sinners satisfied both the demands of God's justice and wrath while simultaneously making it possible for God to give full vent to his mercy and his grace. That's why the cross is such a big deal. That's why Jesus' death for sin is such a big deal. So as I wrap this up, the gospel is not a story about how Jesus loved us so much that he came to the world to prove uh, to his angry and wrathful dad, oh God, just give them a second chance. They're really not bad at the heart of it. That's what we think of the gospel sometimes is that Jesus came, God's angry, the father's mad, throwing lightning bolts. Jesus is soft and gentle you know, the thumbs up, he loves everybody, and he came down here and he convinced God to quit being angry. But Paul says, don't see it that way. Paul says it was God the Father's plan that moved Jesus from the throne of heaven into a lowly manger to die for your sins. It was God the Father who already from eternity past loved you and wanted to save you, and therefore Jesus acted as an expression of the Father's love for you, and he gave his life to save sinners from sin. God, it's not this pit Jesus against the Father thing. The Father longs to save sinners this morning. The Father longs to save you this morning. He longs to save your children this morning. So call out to him. So as Daniel and the praise team come, I want to ask a few questions as we end. I'm really only closing one time here. If you've experienced the things that we have talked about, or have you rather experienced the things that we've talked about today? Have you experienced this transformation from death into life? 
Have you had a heart change? Have you had a life change? Let me ask it this way. Is there any evidence in your life this morning that demonstrates that Jesus has brought you from death to life? Don't tell me you've made a profession of faith. Don't tell me you walked an aisle and shook the preacher's hand and joined a church. Don't tell me that you were baptized. I don't, I'm not asking that question. I'm asking you, does your life give any credible evidence that that was meaningful? Anybody can do those outward acts, but nobody, as we've seen this morning, can change the course of their own life. Only God can, so has God done that? Is there evidence in your living your life that, that would back that claim? Another question, has your encounter with Jesus Christ changed the way that you live your life? As evidenced in how you live and whose desires you live to fulfill? Slightly different question. But before we live for our own desires, we live for the desires of Satan. If we've been changed, if we've been saved, if we've passed from death to life, we no longer live for those desires, we live for the desires of God. Are we doing that? Does your life evidence that this morning? And has the grace of God changed your relationship to God so much that you can with confidence say, God is my father and I bear a resemblance to him in my holy living? If you need to answer no to any of these questions, then don't leave here today without getting right with God. Don't leave here today. If you can't answer yes to every one of those questions or if you're unsure of the answer, then don't leave here today without calling out to a merciful God who shows grace and through that grace brings people from death to life. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for listening ears. And I pray that by your, your grace and for your glory, you would save people from sin this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.